fighting for freedom every day. You as the individual, you have the power. You don't have to join a union. You go in as an entry-level position. You get the experience that you need. And then as you work up, you get better at your job, which means they pay you more. If they don't pay you more, then you go to another company to show what you've learned and what your value is to where you can get more. If they really don't like that, then you can go and start your own damn business because we have a free market, laissez-faire, capitalist society allegedly, to where you can actually go off and do your own thing. This is the Voice of Reason with Andy Hoosier. Boy, another week upon us ready to rock and roll, man. Hey, welcome into the show. Great to have you along for the ride today. What up? As we are about ready to blow your mind like we do every single day on this program, trying to get you pumped up and ready to go for another week, the full final week before the Christmas celebration coming up here soon. Welcome into the show. This is The Voice Reason. I am Andy Hoosier broadcasting live out of the heart of the nation here in Wichita, Kansas on our flagship radio station. We are all over the country, multiple radio stations, TV, live streaming, and podcasting, however you watch or listen to the show. Welcome. We love you to death. Your millennial general reporting for duty like we do every single day. I <laughs> I was watching the Biden administration over the weekend, and I love when he tries to be out in public and tries to... Um, go along with the public and tries to relate to the public. He was at some type of toy wrapping event for children, a charity event. And I don't know if you've seen the video. It's kind of hilarious. There's no audio, so I don't need to play any of it for you. But he was there with all the kids trying to put together a bicycle. Didn't work out too well. He struggled quite a bit putting together that bicycle, trying to put the handlebars on that one. There's at some point where you just say, stop. Just stop. Try, stop trying to be involved. Stop trying to be out in public. Stop trying to do all this. Uh, just stop. Just shake hands, smile, uh, stumble through your speech, and then go about your day. We know you're going to fall asleep anyways. We know the steroids are gonna, only going to keep you up for so long. Just do your th- We already know the level of expectation we have for you, Joe Biden. Don't try to supersede that. Just throwing that out. That One of the Secret Service guys ended up having to go over and help him out with it. Kind of comical uh, on that front. Don't mean to pick it, Joe Biden. I mean, it's kind of the low-hanging fruit. You doing all right, buddy? Feeling good? Feeling all right? I want to be clear. I'm not going nuts. Making sure. Bottom of the hour. We got a big show lined up for you today. Marion Tupi. He is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. For those that don't know, the Cato Institute, a libertarian think tank out of Washington, D.C. As we talk about population, population control, the size of the global population, are there too many people in the world or can we handle more? According to Elon Musk, which is getting a lot of heat, and we'll talk about him a little bit later on in the show as well. According to Elon Musk, we could double the near 8 billion people that are on the planet Earth right now as we speak. We could double that and still be fine. Others, mostly left-wing progressive elites, say that we're running the resources so thin in the world that we need to kill off the population and have population control, which is why like China has the one-kid one rule and uh, other elites try to you know, push the abortion issue and the contraceptive issues because, well, they just think that we're already killing and raping the earth of its resources and that we need to limit the global population because there are too many people living in poverty, too many people that don't have enough resources, and too many people that are dying due to overpopulation. So we'll talk about that theory, and you can kind of uh, we can break your mind on that one at the bottom of the hour with the Cato Institute. I want to start off today, though, 
a little bit. First off, I hope you had a great weekend. I had a great weekend. It was a lot of bu- really busy getting ready for the Christmas holiday. There we go. Wrapped up the weekend. Hope it was great. I can't believe, honestly, this is the last final week before Christmas. Next week is Christmas holiday or the beginning of, and I get it. You're going to be completely tuned out. We will try to talk about some political issues, but it's going to be more of a light program throughout next week because I get it. You're in holiday mode and don't want to be angry. There are some serious things going on, though, that we will talk about throughout this week. And next, by the end of this week, the federal government needs to pass the continuing resolution or else the government might shut down. I know. Horrible thing. Horrible thing. If the government shuts down. So that will be a focal point going on throughout this week. The continuing resolution, the Defense Authorization Act that is sitting in the Senate right now after passing by the House of Representatives, which the Republicans say, hey, we got the removal of the COVID-19 vaccine mandate for the military even though there's a whole bunch of other garbage in there that Democrats wanted. So we got our one win. Now let's spend a crap ton of money on other things that are non-military related because, well, that's just the Republican compromise with the Democrats. So that won't be a focal point today, but look forward to that throughout this week. This morning, or this morning, this afternoon, I want to do something a little bit different than we do on this program. Usually we talk about mostly the current events, the hot items, the, uh, the headlines of the day. I want to go a little bit deeper today. And I want to break your mind. I know it's a Monday. I know you're probably burnt out from the first day of the week. But bear with me here. And I really want you to ponder this. As conservatives and as libertarians or conservatives or even Democrats that listen to the show, I really want you to think hard and long before you do an immediate answer here, one way or the other. Because I'm conflicted on here. Should we be banning books in our public education system? And here's here's what I mean. As you know, the Democrats have been on a tirade for years trying to ban specific books, ones that really are of historical value that show the way things were at certain times. The best one I can really depict is the uh, book To Kill a Mockingbird, where they've made books, they've made the movie. It was a wonderful movie as well, but it really depicts the historical reference of what was going on around that time. And for those that have never read the book To Kill a Mockingbird, I highly recommend you reading that book where it's the trial of a black man who supposedly beat or killed somebody and the white guy that took the case to defend him and prove his innocence, but due to the bias of the racial tensions at that time, they just automatically blamed the low-income black guy because that's the way it was back then. And the Democrats have been all up in arms for years trying to ban this book. I remember reading it in my English class in high school, and it opens your eyes on the way things were then, and again, It creates conversation to put it into context. And the reason they wanted to ban it was because of the language on how the derogatory remarks were made towards the minority individual, which is very triggering for the left side of the aisle. I get it. But then, again, it was the historical context, and it was a great piece of literature. But throughout the years, as... I I guess I want to say the commercialization of books, if that's really the term to put it into, where everybody writes a book about everything. I get it. I'm a political talk show host. Apparently, I'm supposed to have a book, too, because every conservative talk radio host has a book that comes out like every year and they're super popular. I guess I need to write a book. I'm in the middle of one, but I haven't written it yet. But everybody in their kitchen sink apparently comes out with a book. And there's nothing wrong with that because the art of literature and the art of writing and the art of expressing themselves through word is a very important, a very powerful and a very meaningful way to just to relay a message or express yourself or create art or create emotion or whatever. But throughout the years, I think that we've transitioned more from an artistic perspective 
to pushing a specific agenda. Now, as a conservative, I can tell you that I am, for the most part, against banning of books, the book burnings, all this type of garbage, because I don't like censoring content. I think people need to read it. I think people need to understand it. And I think people need to try and under uh, break it down and uh, try to relate or put context behind it in some way, shape, or form to create a dialogue. I do not like censorship. I do not like living in a bubble. And I do not like screening. That being said... The question is, with the way that books are being written today and pushing specific agendas, does there need to be some type of book banning from public schools? There's a guy out of Florida, and you can read this at popular.info. There's a guy out of Florida, Clay County, Florida, who has banned 102 books from the school libraries across the state and in, in, in that county. His name is Bruce Friedman. And he lives in uh, he lives in Clay County, as he said that he has attended 28 meetings throughout the year through the Florida Department of Education's Library Meeting Working Group, and has compiled a list of 3,600 titled books that he believes have quote concerning content, including porn, critical race theory, social emotional learning, and fluid gender. Where he says the libraries have more than a little poison in them, and says that he needs to clean up this mess to perform 3,600 challenges and overwhelm your awful, awful procedures and policies. That's referring to the Department of Education for the state of Florida. Now, they call him a conservative, and I'm torn on the message that he's portraying here. But again, we have to look at the context of the books. And again, I'm not taking one side or the other here. I'm simply relaying the info for you to come to your own conclusion. As one who does not like to censor content, who does not like to block books or ban books or burn books, because that's kind of the left side of the aisle. Let's completely erase history so that way we don't have to learn it, so that way we can repeat it. Because if you teach people that uh, racism didn't happen then or we're trying to apologize for racism now, then we can create segregation and racism and division in today's world because that's totally the way for reparations like the state of California is trying to pay off. I don't like that. Now, I don't. I guess it depends on the age group that you're also referring to with the children that are being involved here. I don't want my eight-year-old daughter reading certain books. However, when she gets to high school or early college area, I want her to read as many books as possible to put things into perspective and say, wow, this person's messed up, or wow, I could learn something from this. Books used to be, and I love to use this reference uh, from back in the day, it used to be like Native Americans where the, and, or where the, uh, the elders would tell stories And the stories would have lessons, and the young children who haven't experienced the world yet would listen to these stories and pick apart the lessons to digest them and understand them and use them in their daily life. Nowadays, we disrespect the elders because I'm going to learn for it myself, and I don't care what you have to say. And oh, by the way, I'm just going to go do whatever I want to anyways. And it's sad that we've gotten to that level. So I've looked at the list of books that he's filed to ban. Now, I didn't look at all of them because obviously there's a lot of them, and some of them I can see on why we would have these in our public libraries for schools and for children, especially younger children, to read and say, what the hell are you doing? But others, I don't understand why he would try to ban these. Just a couple of them to pick apart, kind of random ones that I chose from his list, and you can find these and find the descriptions on them at goodreads.com. One of them's called Crank by Ellen Hopkins, and I was reading just the depiction of this book. In Crank, Helen Hopkins chronicles the turbulent and often disturbing relationship between Christina, a character based on her own daughter, and the quote-unquote monster, the highly addictive drug crystal meth, or Crank. 
Christina is induced to the drug while visiting her largely absent uh, father. And while under the influence of the monster, she becomes and discovers her sexy alter ego, Bree. Well, there is no perfect daughter, no gifted high school junior, no Christina Georgia Snow. There is only Bree. Well, she will do anything to attract the attention of dangerous boys who can provide her with a steady flow of crank or the drugs. Now... On the surface level, that sounds like, well, you know what? I really don't want my kid reading about that. I don't need to read a book about a high school girl to get addicted to drugs and perform sexual acts or becomes highly, quote unquote, sexy in order to uh, gain the appearance or the attention of boys in order to gain drugs. At the same time, if it's a high school reading, uh, high schooler reading this book, would it almost be beneficial to have the class be reading this book and be like, wow, do you see what drugs can do to you? Don't do drugs. Okay. Drugs are bad. Okay. <laughs> Is that a conversation to have with a group of individuals to bring awareness to the issue? I can see why we'd want to ban something like this. At the same time, I don't want them to be shielded from it to not have any understanding of what drugs or that provocative type of uh, attitude can do to individuals, good or bad. That's on the list to be banned, and he gives the reason for it in his letters, saying to protect children because he doesn't want that content being exposed Two children again i guess it comes to the age group of what you're trying to appeal to here and what age groups that are actually being uh involved with reading these books but that's one example of the many books that he's tried to ban from the public libraries and the public schools in the state of florida and clay county there your thoughts on this i'd love to hear from you if you email me who's your media network at gmail.com it's an interesting conversation i want the conversation i am not going to have my little daughter grow up in a bubble at the same time it's got to be age appropriate And nowadays we've gone from learning and a lesson to a political agenda, which I'll talk about coming up after the break, as I have seen some of those books at well, even for young children, for my daughter at the age of eight. Lots more coming up. Stay here. The Voice of Reason with Andy Hoosier. Bring some reason into your day. This is the Voice of Reason with Andy Hoosier. Welcome back into the program. Thanks for hanging out with us today. Book banning out of public education. Kind of interesting to talk about as one quote-unquote conservative individual out of Clay County, Florida, trying to ban more than 3,600 books from there because of the content, which really brings it up. Are we banning history or conversations, or are we banning political agendas? I can see the political agendas Wanting to go away. There was a book. It's a little voice of reason. She's eight years old, for those that don't know. She gets these books every month in the mail. And we read them. We discuss them. We talk about them. And there have been some that have made me very unhappy with the type of books that she's gotten. One called, and i got to find it here. I think it's just called The Pink Hat. Which, if anybody knows what The Pink Hat is with some of the women that went around with their ridiculous pink hats over the last few years. Uh, the book was called The Pink Hat. And it was a picture book of this pink hat that was sewed together by her grandmother that fell on the floor and she picked it up and it flew off of her head and landed with a little girl. And this hat traveled around to all these girls and little girls until she found an entire crowd of women walking down the streets wearing this pink hat so she would fit in and everything would be great and hunky-dory. Yeah, I'm kind of not okay with that. 
as we know, the real connotation about what those pink cats are really about, and I'm not okay with my daughter reading those. That type of stuff, yeah, I don't want in there. That's the difference between expanding thought to make you think a little bit deeper and then pushing a political agenda, which is what we seem to see in a lot of newer books today. At the same time, with this book that was on the list to be banned, this Crank book, as we read, with this girl that is a junior, I believe, in high school that ends up getting addicted to drugs and the conversation about what she does to continue to get these drugs, I think is an important conversation to have. There was a book that we read in actually when I was in high school, and I cannot remember the name of it for the life of me, but we read it in our health and PE class. It wasn't even in one of our sit-down classes. It was in PE, and we would have some days out in the gym doing activities and other days where we would sit in the classroom and learn about health things, and it was a... what was it called? It was the Bad Apple or something? It was about an apple. And it started off with the book, but it was an interesting book because it started in reverse where this high school kid was all about partying and drinking. And by what would be the end of the book, but started off with the beginning of the book, was him being a blackout drunk and being an alcoholic and having to call on old friends and family to try and save him because he would wake up in the middle of the alley and have no clue where the hell he is. And it would regress on what it was like when he first got into drinking in high school and in college with the parties and having a good time and trying to outdrink everybody else and being known to be able to hold more liquor than anybody else. And it was a story about that, but in reverse, where it started off with him being the crazy wild drunk and what led up to that point. And it was a conversation starter for the classroom uh, because then I believe there was heroin involved. And the only reason I remember this conversation, and it was something ridiculous, was because There was a debate between some of us in class and the teacher on whether the word heroin actually had an E at the end of it. I've seen it both ways. The the word heroin, whether there was E at the end of the actual word or not, uh, and that triggered my memory on why we even had this conversation. But I remember reading this book about this high school kid, and it was the conversation started to say, hey, don't do these things because this is what it could potentially lead to. Not that you're going to. Not that it's an absolute but this is what it could lead to, so make smart decisions as now we're in high school and we're beginning to grow up and we're going to go off on our own in college and all this other stuff. That's the conversation that needs to be had. And they're important. And I think today there are so many both teachers and parents and just adults in general that are afraid to have tough conversations with the youth of today, which is why now the only topic they are getting or the other conversation they are getting are whether they're actually confused with their gender identification. We need to have the tough conversations. So where's the line for you personally? And you don't have to give me an answer, obviously, but to ponder internally for you to decide where that line's drawn between what's appropriate to have the conversation with your children, the books that they should or could be reading compared to the ones that are pushing a certain political agenda to brainwash them into forcing them to think a certain way, teaching them not how to think, but what to think. Kind of an interesting conversation. Marion Tupi, Cato Institute, going to be right on the program right after the break, right here on a Monday's episode of The Voice of Reason. Stay here. The Voice of Reason with Andy Hoosier. When Reason Meets Radio. 
You're listening to The Voice of Reason with Andy Hoosier. Welcome back into the program. So, had a message on the Facebook live feed from our friends over at OpsLens, which you can find at O-P-S-L-E-N-S on their app, on their website at OpsLens.com. Also on their Facebook page, which we have a lot of listeners that jump on there every day. Thank you for that. We love you guys. You're family to us as you've been carrying us for now almost a year. January, actually, no, I want to say the end of December last year was when we started uh, getting picked up by Ops Lens and you guys carrying the show. We love you guys to death and thank you. I had a comment on there about the difference between heroin with an E or without an E. And blue, I had no clue. You learn something new every day. So apparently heroin without the E is the actual drug, which is what the book was about that we were referencing in the uh, past segment. But heroin with the E means an admired or idealized woman for her courage, outstanding achievements, or noble qualities. In mythology or folklore, it's a superhuman woman with qualities of... Uh, Magical powers or something of that sort. So, I hey, you learn something new every day. I had no clue. There you go. <laughs> the difference between the two. I don't know why that came to mind, but I remember having that debate in high school with my gym teacher on whether the E was at the end or not. Welcome back into the show. Kind of an interesting conversation. Andy, what the hell are you talking about? If you missed it, don't worry about it. You can go back to the podcast and listen a little bit later on. We got a lot to get to today. We have the Supreme Court that will be looking at student loans and the student loan forgiveness program by Joe Biden. We'll get to that here in just a little bit. But right now, we're going to shift gears in just a bit and do our latest in what's trending. What's trending today? And really happy to have these guys on the program. I am a huge fan of the Cato Institute, C-A-T-O.org. You can find all the great stuff there, the Libertarian Think Tank out of Washington, D.C. But here's a question for you, as this has been a topic of discussion for a while. Now, as you know, the other side of the aisle politically likes to talk about how we're overpopulated, we're killing off, raping the earth of its resources, we have so many people that are living in poverty and the lack of resources, and therefore we need population control, which is why we push abortion, which is why we push contraceptives, which is why, like, China has the one-child rule and other nations have tried the same thing, and they've even brought it up with discussion here in the United States. So the grander question is, what is the level threshold that the world can maintain for a global population as we broke that 8 billion person population a while ago and as we continue to climb globally? Are we okay? Do we have enough resources? And what is that threshold? Excited to have on the program. He's the author of the book, Super Abundance, the story of population growth, innovation, and human flourishing on an inf- infinitely bountiful planet. Excited to have on the program here, Marion Tupi. Marion, how are you, my friend? I'm very well. Thank you very much for having me on your program. Yeah, I'm excited to have you on. It's a great conversation, and I I appreciate you jumping on to talk about this. Here's the question. We're over 8 billion people on the planet right now. Uh, We've had one side of the aisle say that we're way overpopulated. We have to control it and depopulate. Then we've had, I I believe it was Elon Musk a few years ago or someone else uh, that was relatively big, said that we could double the global population and still be fine. Are we okay right now? Well, we certainly are. Uh, just think about it this way. 200 years ago, when, uh, in 1800, when, uh, when Thomas Jefferson was president of the United States, there was 1 billion people in the world. Today's 8 billion people in the world. And yet, on just about every measure that you can think of, the world and humanity is doing much better than what it did in 1800. Nobody sane would want to live in 1800 with their diet, with their life expectancy of 30 years, with their dentistry, with their means of transportation, with their low levels of literacy, uh, the world is simply doing much better. Not just Western countries, but also the rest of the world is growing faster and people are living 
um, more prosperous lives, longer lives, uh, fewer babies are dying in infancy. So just about everything you look at is getting better in spite of, or I would argue because of, more people in the world. More people have more ideas. More ideas lead to new inventions and innovations. And those innovations lead to productivity gains and higher standards of living, not to mention new drugs, combating of cancer, and whatever else. That's an interesting, i, I got to be honest, I've never heard that take on it before because we always hear from the mainstream media always about how we're overpopulated. We hear about the running out of resources and how so many people live in third worlds and, and don't have a whole lot of resources. But you're saying that's not necessarily the case. And I would say even the lower income individuals or third world countries are even better off now than what they were, like you said, back in the 17, 1800s. Well, of course it's not true. If you just think about it for one second, which unfortunately people at the New York Times never do, <laughs> is that every baby that comes into the world comes not only with an empty stomach, but also a brain, a brain capable of new ideas, of new inventions, of contributing more to uh, to to the human enterprise. And of course you're right. I mean, uh, generally, I mean, just speaking about GDP per capita, uh, the world is about 12 times better off than it was in 19, uh, in 1800, and that's adjusted for, 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 for inflation. So we are talking about 11-fold increase in standards of living, and in the United States, about 24 times better off than we were in 1800, in, just in terms of GDP per capita. So yes, um, you know, the, part of the political spectrum looks as children and the human beings, as contributing something to the human enterprise, as being potentially the source of tremendous uh, improvement, tremendous advances. And the other side of the political spectrum looks as human beings as cancer, as children as uh, cancer on the planet, uh, as, you know, as, as, as a plague. Yeah. And I, I simply reject that completely. Um, you know, it, it doesn't matter uh, then what happens. I mean, if you don't have people, then what does it matter if you have clean environment? If there are no people, then... Uh, how do you perceive this beautiful world around us? Who is there to perceive it? The animals don't care about the world. They care about eating, having sex, and not being eaten by other animals. They don't care whether the world is beautiful or not. We do. So without humans, the world might as well not exist. Yeah, that is very true. There's no value to it if there's no one there to actually appreciate that value. Uh, it, with the world population growing right now, in the U.S. and other large countries, uh, China for especially is that example, we're starting to see or are we starting to see a decrease in the population? I mean, right now we see the baby boomers that are coming up and going into retirement age. I'm 34, so I'm on the tail end of that with the millennials right now that are seeing a smaller workforce compared to ones that are going into the retirement age. But overall, in some of the first world countries of China and with the U.S. and with the U.K. and the U.N. in general, are we seeing an increase moving forward? Or are you starting to see a decrease in some of the populations in these nations? Well, for a millennial, you sound uh, very sensible. So uh, I don't know how you escape the plague. <laughs> we try <laughs> but, to represent uh, the other perspective here. <laughs> but okay, look, uh, in 107 countries out of 190, uh, population growth is be below below replacement level. Mm. Uh, to keep population stable, you need 2.1 babies per woman per lifetime. Uh, right now, in a majority of countries, it's below that level, below 2.1. In the United States, it's 1.7 for native-born American women of whatever race. Um, it is, uh, um, it is, it is. In fact, we're still growing, uh, 
but that's because of immigration, right? Uh, the Chinese have just lost the title of uh, most populous country to India. Uh, the Chinese are very proud of the fact that they have prevented 400 million births from taking place as a result of their one-child policy. But that has completely messed up their population pyramid. The healthy pyramid looks well, like a pyramid, a lot of young people and very few old people at the top. Uh, but the Chinese have managed to uh, prevent the birth of so many people that now they are having this huge bulge of old people who are getting into the retirement age, and they don't have enough young people to um, uh, to fill out the positions in the economy. So China has abandoned its one-child policy in uh, 2015. Uh, then they permitted two babies. Now they permitted three babies. And I don't think we are very far from a dystopian kind of world where the Chinese will actually force women to have children, which, of course, I don't agree with. Wow. That takes it to another level. They've kind of gone from one extreme to the other, realizing that the policy didn't actually work. Uh, when well, you but that's, that's, yeah. what you get, that's what you get from a totalitarian communist regime. They don't care <laughs> about human freedom. They just use people as widgets. It's absolutely disgusting. Yeah, yeah. it's whatever the state needs at that time is what they're going to force individuals to do, uh, which is sad. While we talk about resources, for example, whether it's food, whether it's energy, I know that from the other side they always talk about how we consume. The U.S. consumes more energy than any other nation. We consume so much energy when it comes to natural gas or coal or electricity. Uh, but as you mentioned, as we evolve through this and as we have more individuals and more educated individuals that innovations come about are we still at the top of the list uh, worldwide do you think for the efficiency of using those while we may consume more we waste less because of the efficiencies that we have in the system and the technology that we've been able to create well, we use a lot of energy, but we also produce a lot in this country. I mean, something like 20% of global output is the United States. Um, what is it? $25 trillion, $26 trillion economy out of $110 trillion global economy. So we have a huge economy um, that, is, that is powered by, by the energy that we consume. Uh, the key here is that as a result of America switching from coal to natural gas, we were able to decrease our emissions of CO2 much more than other countries, including Europe. Uh, we, we are doing extremely well when it comes to environmentally friendly production of, of energy because mm. natural gas, burning of natural gas, emits only half as much CO2 as, um, as burning of coal. Uh, also, uh, in the capitalist system, uh, companies have an incentive to increase their profit margins by consuming less energy. You know, you still have to pay for electricity. You still have to pay for oil and gas. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, in a free market system, uh, corporations always want to use as little outputs in order to produce, uh, sorry, as little input in order to produce output. And and so, you know, people are always on the lookout to, to save energy. I don't think that American uh, corporations are... Uh, you know, looking to use more energy than yeah. they absolutely have to. Just, and then, of course, says, we Marian, need to look... Marian, I hate to, I hate to catch you out. we got to take a hard break here. Can you stick over one more segment with us? Of course. Awesome. I love it. I love the conversation. I want to keep this going. I hate to cut you off there. We'll continue this when we come back. It's Marion Tupi, Senior Fellow with the Cato Institute. You can find his book, Super Abundance, at superabundance.com. We'll continue this conversation right after the break. Stay right here on The Voice of Reason. The Voice of Reason with Andy Hoosier.
fighting for freedom every day. The Voice of Reason with Andy Hoosier. Fighting for freedom, reason, common sense, rationale. Welcome back into the program. Last few minutes of the show for a Monday. I love this conversation. I'm so glad we did this as we talk about population, we talk about innovation, talk about the difference between the needs of the state and the needs of the people. We're talking with Marion Tupi, Senior Fellow at the Cato Institute, which you can find the book Super Abundance, the story of population growth, innovation, and human flourishing on an infinitely bountiful planet. You can find the website to order the book and more at superabundant.com. And Marion, you kind of, it, it was a perfect lead into the direction I wanted to go with this, and it's kind of a rhetorical question, at least for us on this side, is capitalism versus the needs of the state. As you mentioned, capitalism, a business tries to find the least amount of input and expenses for the most amount of output with efficiency for their profits in the bottom line. Is that what's going to get us through as we continue to grow? And is that what do you think third world countries need in order to increase their efficiency of use of certain resources, whether it's food or whether it's energy or that sort of thing, in order to take care of the consumers in those areas and to be able to make things as efficient as possible? Well, I think that advanced countries and third world are looking at two different sets of challenges. In our country, in the United States, uh, we have a problem with a regulatory state. Uh, which basically makes it much more difficult for the free market to operate. Um, whereas, uh, whereas, whereas in, in the third world, they basically need to get their institutions in order uh, so that free market can function at all. Uh, it's not necessarily that uh, those countries are overregulated, although in some cases it's true. Uh, the, the, the problem in third world is that they very often don't have independent judiciary, they don't have protection of private property rights. It's very difficult to invest and uh, hope that you can recoup your investment because some uh, crazy general or politician can come over and basically confiscate your your factory or or or, or your shop. Um, so so I, I think there are two different sets of sets of challenges. I mean, in many of these countries, it's not a question of improving upon capitalism. It is creation of capitalism in the first place, which they never had. Yeah, well, that is very true. Well, it reminds me of like the Cuban Revolution, where they came and just kind of looted all the ranches and farms in the area uh, during the revolution or the apartheid going on in South Africa to where they just go and confiscate the farms. And then they're going to wonder where the hell all the food went in the area because they run out of it because they don't have anybody to actually run those things. We got just a couple minutes here as we kind of wrap up the conversation, but I want to touch, uh, touch on food for a second. I live in Kansas. I'm in the middle of the country. We have a lot of farmers and ag leaders around here that talk about the strain on the food uh, system to feed everybody in the population, whether it's just here or all the experts that we see globally. Uh, as we look at genetics to try and make food bigger and, and uh, be able to feed more individuals, where are we, do you think, on the food level, not just in the U.S., but in third world countries and around the world as well, when it comes to the food chain? And are we okay with the amount of food to feed the global population? Oh, absolutely. The world already produces enough calories to feed everybody sufficiently for a day, um, which is to say uh, produces enough calories every day to, to feed everybody for a day. Uh, the problem is that... Uh, uh, about one third of our foodstuffs uh, rots, mm. um, uh, basically on on uh, on 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 the way or or because of of uh, bad distribution systems, and um, 
and and also another thing that we face is that um, the, the global farmer is nowhere near as productive as the American farmer. I mean, the American farmer is extraordinarily productive. In 1900, 40% of all Americans worked in agriculture. Today, it's down to 1.5%. And yet, American farmers are not only able to feed the American population, but also export a ton of food to the rest of the world. If we could get the rest of the world's farmers to be as productive as American farmers, we could turn the land size 10 times the size of Iowa back to nature and feed 10 billion people in the world. In other words... By becoming more efficient as a farmer, you are not only feeding the world and making more money, you are also saving the environment because we can turn over more nature to the animals where the biosphere can reconstitute itself, which addresses one of the complaints that the environmentalists have. I was going to say, it makes everybody happy. It makes the left happy for having more turning back to Mother Earth and being able to enjoy nature, and then it also uh, makes us more efficient. I love it. We just have to get there. We have to get to that point. I know it's a work in progress. The book is Super Abundance. Find it online, superabundance.com. Marion, it's so good to talk to you, my friend. I love the conversation. we got to do it again real soon, brother. Anytime. Happy to come back. Bob. Hey, Thank absolutely. Very much. Well, very much. We appreciate that. That does it for us today. Podcast up here in just a little bit. Boy, what a great conversation. We'll break that down again tomorrow. Also, a lot more to get to tomorrow. Until then, be your own voice of reason. Be that catalyst for change in your own community. It's time for you to speak up, speak out, speak loud, speak proud, speak the truth, and always speak some reason. This is The Voice of Reason. I'm Andy Hoosier. We'll see you on the radio.